Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Escape Podcast. I'm Jason Jenner, and this week my guest is Peter Devlin, Head of Technology at Axis Studios. Based in Glasgow's Sky Park building, with its spectacular 360-degree views of the city, you'd be hard-pushed to find a more creatively diverse studio than Axis. Building on an early specialism in animation cutscenes for games, Axis have, across the last 20 years, gone on to produce award-winning CG and animation work for pretty much every area of media and entertainment. My conversation with Peter was quite long and detailed and reasonably technical, so we've split this one into two. In this first part, we discuss Axis's history and company culture and their technology choices, specifically for rendering large-scale projects at very high quality. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Jason. Um, and we're going to have a chat today about a big topic, really. I mean, rendering, rendering at scale, which is something that um, lots of our studio partners are interested in and something that you have quite a bit of experience with. But um, before yeah. we get into the detail on that, perhaps you could just give us a, you know, a, a nice overview of, of Axis Animation, um, the kind of work you guys do, you know, the size of the studio and, and, and just so we get some, some insight into, into the world of Axis. Sure. Um, the Axis Studios group comprises uh, these days three different studios. Um, it originally began in Glasgow in 1999 as Axis Animation, um, providing high quality animation services to the television and video game sector. Um, going back, uh, back to that period, there wasn't really a proper video game sector at the time and there certainly wasn't a service industry for it. So it was a bit of a gamble. Mm -hmm. Um, started out as a relatively small outfit. Um, I believe back at that time, I was employee number six. <laughs> um, we celebrated our 20th anniversary, uh, Christmas 2019. Um, and during that time, uh, the facility or the facilities have grown from, you know, half a dozen people to we essentially had to take a concert venue to host nearly 350 people. Uh, so there's been a, a sustained period of growth over the 20 years. Uh, but alongside, that's, alongside that, the growth has been not just in terms of people, but in terms of the sector that we work in, games, television, and the growth in where we look to place ourselves in the market. Um, the clients we deal with, and laterally changes to the television sector, streaming on demand, and so forth. Um, I think we access has been very fortunate to have started when it did because it was probably a tipping point in personal computer technology, home computer technology. Um, and the adoption of video games and good quality CG uh, in movies, which has yeah. gradually made its way down into television. We've been continuously active over those 20 years, and we've gone from, I guess, embryonic video games services, and to some extent servicing what was then cable television channels. Just to uh, interject there, Peter, about the games piece you keep mentioning, I think, am I right in thinking that... that your your games work initially was what well, I think what used to be called sort of FMV full motion video yes. cutscenes for games rather than game you weren't you weren't working in the games developer sector were you it was more um, no VFX, we were we were video. providing we were providing services yeah. i.e. full motion video and cutscenes to the game sector as an initial yeah. thing 
Um, if you look back at some of what the work that we did then, which was good by comparison to some of the competition, but it's cringeworthy now. Um, but yes, FMVs essentially, uh, which were pre-rendered cutscenes. Now the game sector for Axis is a very different thing. Um, we made some conscious growth plans around about 2012, uh, off the back of a three-year plan in 2008-2009, where we wanted to diversify what Axis and Glasgow were doing. Um, so we branched out and I consciously sought more television and more film work and more stuff outside of the game sector. Um, and that do you think, led the, us to do you think start... the games, the games FMV uh, work was a good kind of test bed for sort of wider entertainment VFX work? Because I can think of a few other studio partners <laughs> we're aware of who they kind of cut their teeth in that area. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, yeah. about, is there something specific about that kind of work you think that that provides a natural platform to? I think there is. Um, to make a success uh, in the early days, certainly, to make a success of that kind of work, um, you have you had to be quite disciplined, and I think you still have to be. Yeah. Because in effect, an FMV, if you think of full motion videos as well, they were relatively asset light um, compared to what the CG sector can do now. So Axis had a good grounding from early days in actually stripping down a script and detailing it to the, the point where everything was well understood and could be properly scheduled and planned. Yeah. And I think that's one of the strengths that Axis as a company has that, well, let's say some other effects houses in the VFX sector may not have that discipline behind them in terms of doing proper breakdowns and schedules and understanding exactly what is required. But I think that speaks to the differences between, um, let's say, video games or the CG sector, if you will, yeah. and effects and VFX, where in an effects context, you might, necessarily, might not necessarily be bidding in particular detail. You might just be bidding a number of shots mm -hmm. or a length of a piece without a clear understanding of what's involved in that. And you may well actually have to go and prototype and brainstorm what you're going to do in the effects work before you can actually have a real understanding of what's involved. Yeah, but I, I think it does, the discipline does serve Axis well. Yes, yeah, I was going to say, I, I have, I've noticed that other studios have sort of trod that path occasionally. Um, um, you mentioned that the HQ is in Glasgow, just to track back to that for a second. Um, uh, I'm lucky enough to have visited you there a couple of times. Um, it's a, it's quite a studio. I mean, it's a, for for anybody listening that doesn't know, it's um, it's got a, a panoramic. It's a well, it's the Sky Park is the name of the building, isn't it? Um, for yes. good reason. Yeah, you kind of tower yeah. above the Glasgow uh, city skyline, and you can. I mean, I think from from both sides you've got banks of windows, so you could actually see the city in three sixty, can't you? Yes, we can. We're fortunate that. Um... We're fortunate uh, that someone else went through some misery. The previous <laughs> owners of the Sky Park um, effectively went bust way back in about 2012-ish. And the, the building, the complex, if you will, as an entity was bought out by a San Francisco-based investment firm, okay. which um, invests money in building high-tech campuses. Um, so their stated intent was to bring 
that sort of San Francisco ethos to some extent to Glasgow. Um, we were about two years into our search for new premises to expand into when we came back to look at the Sky Park under the new landlords and were astonished to see the change. Um, and we were fortunate enough to be able to take a significant chunk of space in the Sky Park at the time, and we have indeed expanded over the course of the period. So we are on the cusp of having an entire floor in the Sky Park now, uh, which yeah, would be, will bring us to about 30,000 square feet. Wow. Yeah, it's an impressive space. I mean, it's um, and it does. You're right. It has that sort of slightly, um, I don't know, campus Silicon Valley type feel to it. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of a Yahoo building I visited in the States once. It's um, it's quite an, uh, it's an attractive building as well inside. Um, do you think there's anything particular about the fact that you're based in Glasgow? I mean, like, on cost would be the obvious one, I guess, but that gives you a, a cultural identity, you know, because visual, visual effects is such a you know, competitive market now. Yeah, I think there's a few there's a few things that make Access Glasgow unique by comparison to the Bristol and London facilities that we have. Um, cost is obviously one um, to put it in perspective for people who may not be aware of the the associated costs um, for the scale of our London facility, which is twenty to twenty five people. We would be able to say one hundred and twenty five people in Glasgow. It's a five <laughs> times difference cost factor. Yeah, it's a totally so, different, totally different business model, isn't it? Fundamentally, yeah, it's at that slight, level, yeah, slightly different model. But I think Glasgow itself brings a lot of baggage. Yeah. The challenge for Glasgow, the potentially bad bit, is that it's actually quite difficult to recruit talent in Glasgow. Um, right. It's not a talent hub like Bristol or London, so it's a bit of a harder sell if you want people to physically be based in Glasgow as opposed to driving virtually, um, as we've all had to adapt to recently in coronavirus terms. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's a big challenge for Glasgow. Um, plus points, though, I, I should probably just lean back on the, the comments made by people who have moved here from London. We've had guys who've worked for some of the major players in London come in and go, ah, it's marvellous to, to actually stand in the office and be able to see the edge of the city, to see hills, greenery. Mm. Um, we're in, call it hipster central in Glasgow, but we're in the West End just on the edge in Finiston. Um, it has a great vibe to it as well. Um, there's a less cynical, more can-do attitude about working out Glasgow then I feel it certainly when I'm back down in London quite often there's a kind of marked contrast between the two cities. Um, people are a lot more friendly and a lot more forward in Glasgow and more likely to stand and talk with you and gas and, and buy you a drink and show some interest in what you do. In London, I quite often feel people on the tube avoid eye contact and don't want to talk. Yeah. And it's, a much, it's a much less friendly prospect. Yes. Um, I think also there's a bit of Glasgow industrial can-do attitude that comes through in our work as well. Good pro problem-solving attitudes and creative approach, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I think uh, at its heart, um, Axis in Glasgow is a business built from, well, a business built where there was no previous business. So there's a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit there. I think it's fair to say that in line with the games sector evolving over the 20 years of access history, the company's changed quite a lot as well, not just in terms of what the work is like, 
but also what we actually do. Um, we now do a lot of in-engine work, real-time work. Um, we're branching out into virtual reality and various spaces, you know, sectors that just didn't exist three to five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You're kind of widening your customer base, as it were, and the type of projects you work on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, picking up on that, you know, that entrepreneurial thread a little bit then, um, you know, the, the move from sort of, you know, cutting your teeth on the FMV content in the early days of the business, the TV, um, the TV work that you do now, I mean, you, you touched upon the fact that, you know, some of that now is for streaming service providers. Um, uh, I mean, how much of the work today do you think is coming from those sources and, and you know, what kind of television work were you doing before? Sure. Um, I can think back to, let's say, 2005. Mm. Um, the company had been ongoing for about five years-ish. Um, we'd reached the scale of the heights of maybe 30 or 40 people, depending mm -hmm. on how busy we were and how many projects we had on at one go. But typically around about that time, we might have had two projects running simultaneously. And the projects in the TV sector would have involved stings and bumpers for various cable television channels, fully CG animated or maybe CG mixed with a little bit of live action, but not traditional effects type stuff at that right. time. Okay. Um, so it wasn't particularly long form or necessarily complex work. Um, the technologies at the time just didn't really support it for a company our size. Um, now it's a different matter though. Um, as the technology's improved, um, the quality of work is now within reach of a lot of television series uh, budgets. So what you could get way back then and what you can get now are two different things. Um, for us though, uh, the market segmentation has changed quite dramatically and it does year to year. Um, notionally, I would suggest that our games versus other work is probably about 50-50 split or 40-60 or 60-40, yeah. depending on which year you're looking at. Some years it swings heavily one way or other, depending on what a project actually looks like. And I can speak to, for example, around about 2016, 2017, um, in 18 months, we executed two long-form cinema movies, right. fully CG at Axis, which skewed us quite heavily towards movie sector mm -hmm. for revenue. Um, but it's a fairly even mix these days. And I know that this year into next year, it's going to skew heavily towards uh, television and film. And it won't necessarily leave games behind, but we're going to have to grow by a total of about 50% in the next 18 months to service the work that we have on our books. Those film projects that you mentioned there, Peter, were they were you the chief vendor on those? You know, uh, in terms of the, the you know the the larger number of shots, because obviously it's not uncommon in some of the London facilities that the big guys, you know, the three or four big shops to to outsource, you know, portions of or or certain smaller numbers of shots to other facilities or to collaborate. I mean, were you were you leading were you the leading vendor on those projects? It sounds like you probably were. On both those movies, we were the sole vendor yeah and okay. they actually overlapped as projects so it made it quite a challenge for us but it was a good proving ground as well for us to prove that uh, we are capable of doing we're capable of doing long-form work where previously clients might have been a bit 
reticent to come forward and place large portions of work with us because we didn't have that track record. And that would be about scale. You know, the reticence maybe of yeah. would be about, well, have they done something this big? That would be yep. the, yeah. Yeah, yep. it's a scale thing. Um, mm. And it's also a confidence thing that you can execute set number of shots in a set period continuously over the course of 18 months. So total number of shots in one of those big projects then. Give me a, a, a sense of what we're talking. Oh, we're talking about 90-minute movies, so mm. um, you could have a huge number of shots in there. I couldn't give you the exact numbers at this stage. But we could be talking thousands rather than hundreds. Oh, yeah. Right? We're yeah. talking thousands, yeah. yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's what I thought. Um, okay, well, I think that's thank you for that history that's been really really interesting i think and particularly the way it's changed over time and it's nice to be able to talk to somebody that's seen that through a you know a, a relatively long period i think it, it that naturally leads us to having a, a more focused technical chat about about the aspects of of rendering those jobs really i think which is kind of where we want to get to um mm -hmm. i mean it, it that's an interesting juncture in that you've described they're going into you know effectively feature feature projects albeit they were for a streaming you know streaming client potentially but you know that's so much more film work what well, i think in the in, in the, the next few years be of that nature anyway that um that'll become very very uh standard but yeah i think so too but i think one of the key things for us to take away from that um was that we executed both those long form movies alongside our regular workload yeah we kept we just kept things going we didn't close the doors and say no to our standard client base at the time uh, we kept it going. And in fact, while those movies were running, we also had in parallel one of the largest games projects that we had taken on at the time. <laughs> right. um, and that wasn't FMVs and cutscenes. That was actually in-game engine work for Sony um, for a very prestigious project for the launch of the PlayStation 4 at the time. So what did that do to the rendering then? I mean, you've, you've, you're talking about multiple jobs running in parallel for different sectors, some games work, different film jobs, you know. Um, mm -hmm. um, when we talk about rendering and access, are we talking about, give us a, a simple overview. I mean, are, we, are you cloud rendering? Are you doing the majority of your rem rendering on-premise? Okay, I think it's very, the answer to that is, combination of how long is a piece of string and what would you like um, <laughs> any given time these days we have maybe eight to 12 projects running simultaneously and those projects will be highly variable they might be a kind of quick piece which would be a six-week time frame or they might be as long as an 18-month time frame yeah <clears throat> um Numbers-wise, they could be anything from 10 artists on at peak to 70 on the project at peak over the, the period. Um, they might be a mix of things, but generally you can slot one project into one, one pigeonhole. So there might be a number of pre-rendered trailers, there might be some effects work going on with live action, and there might be some actual in-game and engine work going on at the same time. Um, in terms of classic render type projects, um, that could be anything from a small project that sits around about the 10 terabyte storage range, maybe a standard 2K 60 second, 90 second piece. Mm -hmm. um, a more typical would be in the 25 terabyte range. Um, a good size project, maybe about 75 terabytes of storage with the associated frame rates and iterations, and a large project. For us these days, a large project is up in the 350 terabyte range. Right. That sounds like a film job or a, a very heavy long-form job. 
It's quite a long form job, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, cloud rendering uh, or on-premise <laughs> rendering predominantly for those sorts of jobs, or it'll be a mixture, I guess. But there's a there's a bit of a mix. Um, but I think it would be fair to say that predominantly, Axis still relies on on-premise render capability. Yeah. There's a number of historical reasons for that, um, as well as the more obvious uh, thing like cost. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's primarily on-premise that we rely on for pre-rendered material. Um, we like to have control coming from the CG world where we're able to schedule minutely and make very detailed project plans. We like to have control, including control over costs and yeah. render budget. So we are okay with the idea of doing cloud rendering and in fact have gone quite a long way towards embracing it. But I would guess that uh, the vast majority of our work, probably about 90 to 95% is done in-house. It is interesting that that rendering at that scale is still you're still favoring on premise i mean it's it's it makes sense to me for for lots of reasons but um i'd be interested to hear the the rationales behind that but sure um i mean what about cpu gpu i think you're you're doing a mix you probably do a mix don't you of cpu and gpu rendering if it depends on the project i take it again depends upon the project um cpu primarily we have niche gpu projects um, but they tend to be the exception rather than the rule these days. There was a vogue over the last couple of years to try and do a bunch of stuff in GPU. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, the quality bar isn't there. Um, right. We pride ourselves on hitting quite a high quality bar, um, and GPU doesn't yield that necessarily. I think GPU is available if you're looking at um, more stylized projects or less less photoreal or less action oriented. Yeah, okay. Um, so there so are places where it can work for us. Mm -hmm. So what's your CPU and GPU renderers of choice typically then from a software point of view? For From software perspective, we made the switch to Mantra uh, in 2011, I think it was. It might even have been earlier than that. Um, the switch from what was preceding that? Previous to that, uh, our render of choice was RenderMan. Um, although we can remember experimenting with Mantra back when it was known as Prisms in its mm -hmm. version 1.0 form. So we were Mantra for quite a good portion of, well, probably 10 years or more. Mantra has been the renderer, but in the last year and a half to two years, we've taken up a lot more projects using Arnold. Okay. Um, so we're looking at the the pros and cons of a, a typical CPU PBR renderer like Mantra versus something that's a little more optimized, like Arnold. Okay, so you're, the Mantra and Arnold are in use currently. Yes, and. What about, you're talking about Mantra specifically. I mean, does, my understanding is that, you know, rendering with, you know, Houdini and Mantra um, can, it has some idiosyncrasies which can put quite a lot of pressure on your underlying infrastructure from a sort of storage network point of view. I mean, it, is that something that's true in your experience? Um, I think it's something that you address. Uh, we certainly addressed it early days when we were uh, looking at adopting Mantra. Um, 
you have to understand how your renderer works, regardless of whether it's Mantra or Re uh, Renderman or you know whatever renderer you choose. You have to understand how it behaves. Yeah. Um, so we kind of passed that point quite a while ago with Mantra. Maybe others struggled with it. I think mm -hmm. the, the idiosyncrasies are more about the uh, way that Mantra render operations can happen um, and what an artist has to do to make to drive Mantra correctly, to make Mantra really sing. Um, those are probably the more key things once you have a once you have mantra, once you've got Houdini shaders and a pipeline and workflow set up, it's reasonably predictable um, and known. But it's just a challenge of getting there first. I don't think it has a high bar to entry, but if you want to hit real quality, it can have a, a high bar to clear. Mm, okay. So you, you need people who are switched on to make Mantra actually work really well. And we were very fortunate. We had a couple of key guys uh, at the early stages who were super keen on Mantra. So we got over that bar. But I think there may be people who could struggle with it if they were not prepared to take it on. But from a technical standpoint, I think the, the biggest challenge in Mantra terms is you are in a you are in a classic PBR ray trace type model. So you need to understand that there's going to be significant compute times unless you're careful what you're doing. I think the other thing that's relevant to it is um, if you're doing simulations, mm -hmm. dynamics and so forth um, in Mantra, again, you need to have your wits about you when you're going into that. So the, the a Mantra, an artist who's working with Houdini has to have a, maybe has to have a slightly more technical focus at times. Yes. Um, and be more technically aware. Um, whereas Arnold seems to be a little bit more friendly towards the creative types. And what did you find about um, the, the actual specific, uh, the individual specs of your, your render farm nodes, for example? Because you've talked there about coming from a render, uh, a render man background. So now, I think probably when you were using render man as your house renderer, that would have been a raised renderer. Effectively, um, a different it's a different rendering algorithm isn't it compared to physically plausible rendering and ray tracing which is yeah. what we have with arnold yeah. um my my view would be or my understanding would be that you know it's it's the advances in hardware capability that have, have enabled studios to do more and more physically correct rendering with with a with a ray tracer that that you know that crunches data as efficiently as something like arnold does mm -hmm. um i mean is that true for you and if so do you you know how's it influenced the sort of CPU and memory specs of what you're putting together for your render farm? Because I, I, I would imagine it's pushed it higher and higher in terms of specifications. Oh, yeah. Specifications are never-ending cycle. Um, I think there are a number of things in our industry. And if I can take our industry as being broadly encompassing VFX, television, all of the, all yeah. the different media, media specs. Entertainment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, these specs are eternally going up. And the things that are eternally rising with no sign of changing are... Demand for quality, um, higher frame rates, um, more work in camera, if you will, and um, generally artists demanding more of everything, including CPU cycles for compute. But yeah, it's fair to say that when we adopted Mantra, we were, like I say, we were only working on a couple of projects at any one time. Um, but the more you find out what Mantra can do, the higher you push that quality bar. 
the more you need to think about the technical specifications of the kit behind the scenes. Um, we were able to settle on a, I guess, a something of a sweet spot about how we handle Mantra in a render farm context. And that was, in essence, for every CPU core that we had inside a piece of render kit. Um, we provide 8 gigs of RAM to right. the render core. So obviously, as we then go, well, we need more cores to render. We're rendering at higher capacity. We're fitting more into a scene, so we need more memory. We've gone from notionally four core machines with 32 gigs of RAM to where we are now, where we're about to implement a render farm uplift uh, in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And each render node will come with a terabyte of RAM. Well, there we are. Yeah, that's a huge jump. I mean, that's what I, I thought you were going to say. I mean, I, I think those metrics are interesting because we've, you know, in, in providing render technology to studio partners over the years at Escape, we, you know, if you go back, um, I don't know, sort of eight years or so, um, seven or eight years, certainly, you know, we had a view that, you know, a higher number of perhaps medium spec nodes was generally more efficient to render at scale than than fewer very very high spec nodes um, and that was partially driven by the 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 quite dramatic jumps in cpu pricing once you get into the very high core count cpus but actually given the way that the latest iterations of some of the renders that we're talking about here are so mantra and and uh, and v-ray um, and arnold in particular you know, I think there is now more of an argument to have, say, a render node that's based on an 18 or a 22 core CPU, um, you know, with with the sorts of memory loads you're talking about. I mean, it, is that consistent with what you're doing? We, uh, we tended up until recently to look at render capacity as a combination of numbers of nodes and a general, if you like, amount of muscle in the, in the render form. So muscle being CPU and RAM associated with that so that you had a yeah. kind of wider range of flexible nodes. Um, that's fine provided you have the rack space to accommodate large numbers of nodes. When you get to where we are as a facility now where we are space constrained on racks, we're now looking at kind of possibly actually kind of the opposite of what you're thinking about there, Jason. We're actually looking at more specialist nodes, right. i.e. much, much higher core density and RAM density rather than large numbers of nodes Yeah, of an yeah, average, yeah. average scale. Um, I think it's fair to say that for us, and it may not hold for all the other clients that you service, but for us, typically render specifications tend towards obsolescence within about two years of purchase. Yep, tend to agree with that, yeah. 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 So what necessarily was right two years ago doesn't always look right two years, you know, it doesn't look right two in, years later, yeah. <laughs> now in the, in the light of today. And we're certainly beginning to see that where um, our mid-range nodes were 128 gigs of RAM and um, a good chunk of cores in that 16 to 24 cores we're finding that that's no longer cutting the mustard. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the drivers for this is what you can give um, lighting and effects artists at the desktop. Because the more you give people at the desktop, the more they will expect to get from the render form. So there's a, there's a correlation between the two. We made the transition about a year ago from using Intel chips 
Intel Xeons at the desktop to using AMD. And yeah, certainly this last six to nine months, um, AMD Threadrippers are the standard by which our artists judge everything else. So you're using Threadripper in the farm, are you? Not Epic? No, on the desktop. On the desktop, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. and they're starting to look at what was our previously generic render node spec and finding it comes up a little bit short. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of changed the paradigm slightly. It's an indicator for me that some of our effects guys, for example, on higher-end Threadripper systems will no longer submit an, an effects pass to the farm so that they can free up their workstation to do more work. They will actually execute it on their workstation. And presumably that runs the risk of an inefficiency in terms of tying up their, their local yeah. resources. Yeah, yes. so you need to, you, that's yep. probably not, not something you want to persist. Um, what's the corrective to that then? Are we, I mean, are we looking at an AMD-based um, uh, render farm Indeed. switch? Yeah, yeah. Okay. we're looking at, um, so let's take our default current capacity as being 250 render nodes, each of which is a dual Xeon and Intel Silver 4214 chip yeah. uh, kitted out with somewhere between 128 and 192 gigs of RAM. So that's a kind of that's kind of baseline, if you will, render yeah. node specification. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a reasonable yeah. amount of muscle when you've got 250 yeah. of those sitting, sitting, in a, sitting in a bunch of racks. Yeah. Um, and an artist comes along who's now using a 16 or 24 core thread ripper, which is also 128 gigs of RAM locally and a decent NVIDIA GPU as well. Um, they are not necessarily seeing a significant step benefit in pushing towards render farm execution versus local execution. Yeah. So the next step up for us is uh, to take 50% uh, of the farm as the uplift, but do it on much higher capacity nodes. So the next node count is dual AMD 7702 chips uh, with a terabyte of RAM, and that's in each node. Are they, what are they, 64 cores? The 32 yes. cores? 64 yeah. core CPUs, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a big jump. Okay, um, that's really interesting and fascinating, actually. I think um, to see how the desktop experience has driven the choices on the render farm. I think um, we were careful about the uh, this approach, um, given the we did find some glitches when we first adopted AMD Threadrippers at the desktop, and AMD still haven't solved it. Um, it, right. And I think this is mainly a function of the fact that we are in a long-term transition from Windows at the desktop to Linux at the desktop. Mm -hmm. And there is a there is a problem with Threadrippers and Windows. It doesn't manifest itself particularly often, but we were very wary of putting AMD chips into the render farm Yeah, for that reason, even though our render farm is almost entirely Linux. Um, it's different from the desktop. We have a Windows at the desktop, Linux, and the render farm type workflow. Okay. Um, what we did do, though, uh, was we did a very thorough soak testing. Um, we persuaded a nice bunch of people at Dell to give us a lot of expensive kit on the basis of, no, we're not going to buy it. We're actually going to put it in our hot aisle and cook it for a month and see whether it survives and whether it does what it's supposed to do. And the net result was quite encouraging. 
Yeah, I mean, you've liked some of the Super Micro Kit, haven't you, for Render? Um, We've liked the Super Micro Kit for quite some time, and the mm. Super Micro Kit does make sense if you are in the position of buying lots and lots of nodes and you don't need to worry about if a node falls over. No, which it's not pretty, Which is pretty rare anyway. Yeah, but it's not mission critical, over, is it? It's not mission critical, and you've got yeah. another couple of hundred of them in the rack. So yeah. the Super Micro Kit is very robust. Handles our cold aisle, hot aisle setup really well. Um, and we've got absolutely no complaints with them ever. But uh, they didn't have, at the time we were doing the AMD tests, they didn't have a next generation motherboard ready for AMD ethics. So we weren't able to conduct a test with a kit. Had they had that, we'd probably have gone to them and asked for, yeah. the kit for testing. Yeah. It, that is fascinating. I think that 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 is a very interesting thread of the discussion is this this idea of the, the the desktop you know cpu choice pushing changes on the farm i think um you know i've certainly spoken to lots of our studio partners about about amd um cpus in the render farm and you know some of them have some um hesitation toward it shall we say would be the right word i think um and that's partly because there are concerns running mixtures of internal amd cpus in the farm and you know what artists are used to and um and and running render tests on those CPUs to ensure that they're going to get the same results. But I think it sounds like you're ahead of that curve and are seeing the results you want um, from that change, which is kind of fascinating, actually. I think one of the things for us that was most important uh, is assessing the reliability of the kit under load. Uh, yeah. Our render farm almost never goes quiet. And I guess for the other listeners, we operate an unusual um, we operate an unusual server room build at Axis because we are on the seventh floor of a facility in Glasgow. We are space constrained for numbers of racks, so we operate a hot aisle containment scenario where an individual rack of kit uh, of render kit operates at twenty five kilowatts energy consumption. Um, and we have specialist coolers uh, to deal with this. So it's very important for us that if we are looking at taking a new form factor kit, that it gets thrown into our whole aisle and soak tested properly uh, so that we can understand whether it will handle the kind of load, the heat, um, and the throughput that we are looking at. Um, so typically our whole aisle runs at between 35 and 40 degrees. And the cold mm -hmm. aisle intake is 22 to 25. Um, but that means at the back of the racks, in particular our power distribution units, um, they can run at 50 degrees. Um, it gets very hot in the hot aisle. So if there is any ambiguity about the build, the robustness of the kit, um, we'll find it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you've mentioned there. Uh, it's, it's a, a handy segue. You know, your render farm almost never goes quiet, you mentioned there. I mean, there are two questions I have for that, really. I mean, you know, are you, is all the, the on-premise render, is it, all in, is it all in the Glasgow HQ uh, physical space, or do you have any off-site render anywhere? Notionally, we have three portions of render which technically are on-site. The vast majority of our render kit is in Glasgow. We do have render kit in the Bristol office um, and in the, the London context. 
when we initiated the London office in 2017, we built everything with uh, hyper-converged hardware. So we were actually doing render in hyper-converged virtual space in London. Okay. Um, we also have uh, partners that we use um, in effect private cloud render capacity, which we can't turn it on instantly. And um, our, we're kind of outstripping what our partners can supply us with these days. But historically, we have used um, private cloud partners for this as well as the public cloud. But the vast majority of it is based in Glasgow. Yeah, okay. And by by private cloud partners, you mean a, a rendering on, on demand service of some sort? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and and you're, are you making a distinction between that and building a full-blooded pipeline for you to use either Azure or AWS or, or, or GCS? That you're, you're talking about uh, a third-party solution that's kind of done some of that work for you? Uh, no, we built it. We basically went to a partner and said, you currently provide render services. Nothing of what you have is any use to us other than your compute <laughs> and RAM. Right. Give us it all for three months or things like that. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the topics or technology covered in this discussion, please don't hesitate to get in touch using the information below this link or send us an email using info at escape-technology.com. Don't forget to tune in next week for the second part of this conversation. See you next time.